Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Now to tonight's event. Um, Maggie Nelson is the author of nine books of poetry and prose, including The Art of Cruelty, Bluets, The Red Parts, Jane, A Murder, and the National Book Critics Circle Award winner, The Argonauts. She has been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in Nonfiction, an NEA in Poetry, an Innovative Literature Fellowship from Creative Capital, and an Arts Writer Fellowship from the Andy Warhol Foundation. In 2016, she was awarded a Genius MacArthur Fellowship. Ali Libagat has published three books, The Beautifully Worthless, The IHOP Papers, and Cha-Ching. Her next book, The Summer of Dead Birds, is slated to be published in 2019 by Feminist Press. She's also written for the TV show, Transparent. We're here to celebrate the re-release of Maggie Nelson's Something Bright Than Holes. Since its publication in 2007, the collection has proven itself to be both a record of a singular vision in the making, as well as a timeless meditation on love, loss, and perhaps most frightening of all, freedom. Uh, please help me give a warm welcome to Maggie Nelson. I was just saying, today, you know they're here for poetry, so I'm here to break the news. Um, I haven't read a poem in public for 10 years, so this is really a special, special <laughs> um, night for me. But I'm thrilled that Soft School re-released this book. I'm so glad that you're all out here, and um, I'm so grateful for Allie um, for coming to talk with me. So I'm just going to read a little bit from this book and rediscover, um, rediscover it with you. And, um, and you know, this uh, book... Uh, I was looking at it this morning and I was feeling like it was um, and it was feeling kind of like a novel to me, like it had this plot that was not really apparent to me when I was like, these are all just individual lyric poems, but I'll just, so I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about the book um, and then read a little bit from each of the sections, so um, the first section, that are, it has three sections the first section is called The Canal Diaries and from New York, Brooklyn, anybody? A few people? Okay, well, do you know guys are the Gowanus Canal, anybody? All right, well, so I had a mentor, Annie Dillard, who um, who taught me a lot about how to write, and Annie wrote a book that some of you probably know, with Hodermatt Tinker Creek, right? And, um, and when Annie was my teacher, we had very different cultural reference points, <laughs> um, let's just say. So, uh, but I really liked her methodologies, and so I really thought it was fun to take them to things that were not. Um, you know, if she wanted to go have spiritual experiences and think about God, you know, on the East Coast at a pond, I would go to the super fun site in Brooklyn and look at the water um, and write about all the like freaks that were down there with me. You know, but it would be the same type of project in a way about about um, describing what you see. So the first section is I'll read a little bit from it, and the second section is um, called the Hospital for Special Care, and it's about a friend of mine's accident, and I'll read the one long poem from there. And then the last section is um, just uh, uh, poems of love and loss, you know, basically like an affair gone bad, um, which you'll hear about a lot throughout, <laughs> throughout this night, because that's the novelistic aspect of this book that was um, being very clear to me as I looked at it. So, okay, with no further ado, I'll read a few poems from here. So The Canal Diaries, it's weird to read this in L.A. because it's so site-specific, but 
hopefully you will um, bear with me. So um, this is called the Canal Sitters. Every evening the Canal Sitters make their way down the street, past the gigantic mustard-colored pipes that grind up cement, past the pale blue and pink factories exhaling through their vents, past the marble warehouse with its vats of stucco, past the oil trucks that stain the walls of their stable, past the yellow diamond that reefs dead end, and then further down, end. It's why we've come here, apparently, and why we already know we may not stay very long. Meanwhile, the canal sitters have lived here forever. Their job is to sit and watch for new life, to sit and see if anything is growing, has grown, will grow, sit and see what life is left after all human attempts to strangle it, what could possibly be born. They sit and watch the cliffs. They sit and watch the water. They sit and watch the pigeons wheel above the cement crusher's mean lavender dust. You have to watch very carefully. You have to sit at dusk with the man who wears all black, with his white beard, his ropey face. You cannot ask his name. You have to use a quiet pen. You have to notice the white moth on the engorged gladiola. You have to pay attention to the wind. You have to go inside if the wind moves the dust toward you, and it may come flying toward you, invisible, coarse, and possible, flying like a knife down the water. Green, screams from an Italian family up the street, that stupid kid hitting rock after rock with his metal bat. I'd be a shitty boyfriend, you said, as if making a promise. I said, it's not the content I'm in love with, it's the form, and that was tenderness. All last year I planned to write a book about the color blue. Now I'm suddenly surrounded by green, green gagging me pleasurably, green holding onto my hips from behind, digging into the cleft, the cleft that can be made. You have no idea what kind of light you will let in once you drop the bowl. You have no idea what will make you full. All right, so I just keep going down there over and over and over again, all right, and so these are confused, I'm night sitting. Went down to the canal last night at 1 a.m., my first time night sitting. The, the water was black, or just the darkest green, ultra perilous. It's slow lapping, bringing back my old impulse to suicide, suddenly, without being unhappy, or at least without knowing it. Last night before we hung up, I called you my friend. It felt right for the moment. The green canoe still humps the red canoe. The water's very still, though the trees are shaking. The fish monitors are just tired logs and nets bobbing stupidly against the cliff. You said that my last letter takes up a lot of space, is radiant, and I do feel a light growing from far inside, like the moon, just a bit fatter than half. And now after one sitting, I'm no longer scared of the canal at night. Not scared to sit on the concrete slab stained with graffiti not scared to admire the new rash of marigolds glowing in the white industrial light. So this water's very toxic. <laughs> the word I'm looking for, okay, there's a movie called Lavender Lake about the water, so anyway, I'm just telling you that for this poem, Reckless. When the rain comes up, the water lifts itself up and surpasses the moss line, oozes over the cobblestones, threatening everything in its path. Last night I dreamt I didn't move in time. I just stepped in. Totally unmindful, totally reckless. My feet thus lost to the live virus. Um, so the backstory of these poems is that I um, moved to the canal thinking I was moving there for a long time and then within 40 days of doing these poems had a breakup and had to leave my, 
my apartment. And so uh, this is what is happening now, um, is we're moving towards that. So what is it? This poem is called, What Is It? A sad dusk here, the water swollen with debris, the blue wrapper of an almond joy, the hourglass of a maxi. Some of the garbage sinks inexplicably, but most of it just floats by, a bag of lays, another maxi. Today the man in black is wearing glasses, and I wonder how much one has to drink to achieve that nose. Yeah, I get the feeling he doesn't drink anymore. He greets a filthy dog brought by a skinny hippie. The dog's teeth are blood-stained, his hair falling out in clumps. He doesn't really know what he wants, the hippie says, as his dog sniffs the water. Join the club, says the man in black. The hippie tells us his dog has terrible luck. A week ago it fell into a silo. Yesterday it got electrocuted while peeing on a pole. The man in black and I don't really know how to respond. The sky is amazing tonight, full of blurry swans. Why should I keep writing you, I ask? Because there is a purity in it. And so there is. When the hippie finally leaves, the man in black whispers to me, it walks like a parrot, it's scrawny, it fishes, and it's got dark legs. What is it? How the hell should I know? I'm living a lie. Um, and then, let's see. So I'll just read two more from this. This is, these are the two final ones, but I'm, I've, I've, I'm leaving now. Okay, summer song. Yesterday a rose burst forth inside me. Today the rose fled, the world suddenly colorless. Your heart is breaking, let it. So this is who I always am. Love rushing neither toward nor away, just a rash muscle quaking. I had forgotten it, perhaps I had abused it. And then I touched it. I felt its beat shaking the walls. Last night I could not find my way home again. I walked the streets to trace the city in the order it received me, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., one apartment after another, back in Chinatown, invisible again. And then I awoke to the rose gone missing, the boat very dark. You are somewhere swimming by the breakwater. Breakwater coming from your mouth like the color green itself laughing. It's time to let go of this posture, this torque toward the past. In summer's darkest hour, the heart awakens to what it already knows. Nothing to do but welcome its raw clarity. Keep a finger on the pulse, the one sound, the one safety. And um, I'll read this because it's on the tote bag. All right, the real river. This is when I've moved now to the East River. Um, simply put, I didn't know the current brand so fierce here. Wake of a yellow water taxi, orange light disappearing into the west. At the shore of the bone strong river, the real river. Hem of the city, its pale white spire, kidney burning through one side. Everything speaks of its brightness, the salt, the gleam. Rubbing oil now onto my hip, trying to make it better. I had lunged at the spot I thought was wet. Sea Street ferry plowing downtown. This is my life now, utterly jagged by magic. Insert lyricism later. Um, all right, so that was an abbreviated version of that. Um, this is a long poem um, called A Halo Over the Hospital, and um, it's for my friend Christina, who um, has since written an amazing book, I just want to give a plug for it, called A Body Undone, um, Living On After Great Pain, about this accident. But this poem was written, um, I don't know, maybe the first or second time I was with her in the hospital. I ended up taking care of her for some time. Um, and she was in an accident, as you'll see, that, that left her paralyzed, so. A halo over the hospital. You looked beautiful. Your eyes blue and lucid. Though your face has been reconstructed by a team of surgeons. 
just a few little scars on the bridge of your nose and under your chin. You would never know. Your skin hung on a rack. They gave you titanium cheekbones, a titanium jaw, and I couldn't tell either until I brushed your teeth, trying hard to dislodge the morning's oatmeal while avoiding the broken ones. Some on the front are apparently little stumps, and inside your gums an astonishing gnarl of metal, such miniature machinery. You are truly a cyborg now, the metal of your jaw linking up with the metal of your cheekbones behind the scenes. Now your skull is literally shining, and your arms can move so much more than I thought, and your grace is utterly intact. But your mouth gets dry. I have to trace your delicate lips with a finger laden with balm, cherry balm, from a tube. Make sure my hands are clean, and then reapply and reapply. And give you water from a miniature green sponge on a stick, a little lollipop of water. This is an incredibly inefficient means of drinking, you observe. And indeed, each suck gives you only a thimbleful. So we have to perform the feat thousands of times. Try going in on the left side, you advise, and I straddle your bed to do so, trying to avoid your broken teeth in the front. Just shove it back in there, you tell me, always the mentor, always encouraging me to get it right, to find an adequate angle and thrust. When you sleep, I make sure you stay breathing, make sure I'm there when you open your eyes as you're slightly stricken upon remembering the prison your body has become. I'm frightened, you say. And then, I'm sad, I'm so sad to be paralyzed, and I am sad too. You cannot wipe away your tears because your hands don't move, and I cannot wipe them away either because it's too abrupt emotion. Everything now needs to happen very slowly. So you place a wet towel across your eyes and your tears must soak upwards. More ice, more ice, the water on the little green sponge has to be cold, not lukewarm, and your fingertips can't touch the sheet. It's too painful to touch anything smooth. Okay, we'll try propping up your hands on rough white towels. Is that better? Yes. You say my hand feels good touching yours and it's like I won the lottery. You fall asleep again and I hold your hand, but I don't know where to put my head, so I lay it on your bed beside your hips and I fall asleep too. It's Sunday afternoon. Outside in the common room there are people we once might have pitied, but now we envy. Double knee replacement, one amputated arm, big deal. Later I get to wheel you outside, and it takes forever to lift you into the chair, and it requires a motorized yellow crane. Your body hangs like a beautiful tan bird in its beak. <clears throat> I try to wheel you slowly, like Nurse Peggy said, slowly down the glass hallways, careful not to raise your blood pressure. We can go out into the autumn air, but we cannot go down to the pond, not yet. You say you want to see the trees with gold leaves, and so we do. The leaves falling along the pathway bunch up in the wheels of the chair, and I get a little panicked. How do you work this thing? Where are the brakes? Everyone at home wants to know if you're okay. You are not okay. You're paralyzed, and you're in tremendous pain. Everyone keeps asking, do you think she will walk again? But that really isn't the issue. The issue today is your distended stomach, your painful little balloon of gas. Apparently the spine runs the bowels and the blood and just about everything else, miraculous and hurt jelly cord. Your whole body is suddenly withered and transparent. We can see your muscles move with electrodes on. You have some tricep, no bicep. Your left quad jerked, but no luck on the right. Someday you will recover, I just know it, and I tell you so. I cannot stop smoothing your hair. It's blonde, laced with gray, growing longer than it's ever been. And your body I always wanted to see naked, and now I've seen it twice. Once in a photo album I stumbled upon, photos of you and your lover naked in your kitchen, you looked happy and free, and I felt happy for you. And now here, the aureole of your immobile breast, magnanimous and wide, your legs quiet and hairy, so not moving. We discover some stitches in your calf, 
Someone at the ICU must have forgotten about them. The nurse pushes on them and pus comes out. We all wince. They have to come out soon, and so they do. Then dinner wheels in, pureed tuna melt, pureed black forest cake, and I imagine this gigantic medieval kitchen where they make each dish and then send it to an enormous blender and out comes this ridiculous beige and gray paste. Of course you're not hungry. The lemon yogurt I fed you so assiduously in the morning has caused you unthinkable pain, and you think I pushed you into eating all of it, agony. I read you an essay of mine about troubling the passage from the particular to the universal, and you say, yes, Maggie, the problem now is to think the singular. The singular, you say again, very seriously, as if it's 10 years prior and we're just sitting in your office. This whole situation is seeming very singular. Now there's a book you want me to read, but you can't remember the title, so we have to call Jay. I put the phone up to your ear. Press it harder, you say. Okay, the book is called Provincializing Europe, and I promise to read it. At this point, I would eat a copy of Mein Kampf if you asked me to. <laughs> I am so sad to be paralyzed. The problem now is to think the singular. The pain is returning, and thank God Nurse Winnie is back on duty. I'm so glad she's curious, and she presses you to be articulate, even when you're tired and you don't feel like it. She needs more of a description. She doesn't want you to get an infection. Finally, you say, Winnie, the pain in my intestine is coming from my unconscious, a line that brings me unending happiness. Later, I sit on the bed and tell you about my spastic love life, about the person I'm trying not to be in love with. You ask if we went home and fucked, and I say we did, and you are happy. And I love the way the word fuck comes out of your wired mouth, as if desire can never be closed down or tortured out, as if fuck will always bubble out of a metal forest. I tell you a little more and you say, good for fucking, bad for future planning. <laughs> you say I don't have to be ashamed of my desire, not for sex and not for language. You say you've learned by age 50 that you need them both and together and that you and Jay have that. You have been so happy. Crying now, you say, all I can think is that if we built it once, we can build it again. And I know you will, and I tell you so. Then kiss your forehead, the one part of your body that has not sustained any damage. Not one single scratch on your helmet. You took the whole fucking fall on your chin. The snap back of your head caused the fracture. The space that's injured is no bigger than a chocolate bar, and yet here we are. Jelly cord swollen with broken blood vessels. Thousands of nerve cells fighting for life. Quote, scars form, further distorting any surviving nerve pathways. Quote, one axon after another turns into a severed stump. Fuck science, it's so moralistic. And the terrible sensations mean you will heal because you can feel. Like when the nurse pushed on your stitches and they oozed and you said, ow or when the smoothness of the sheet assailed your fingertips, or when you say everything, absolutely everything, feels tired and sore. Every word for you is a chore, and yet you give me so many. We discuss direct service versus com community organizing. Your care for the world is simply astonishing. You even make your physical therapist feel beautiful by expounding on the virtues of her new haircut. Well, my husband really likes it, she says, and you don't even cringe. You change the subject. Tell us the story of your first dog, whose name was Shameless Hussy. I'm happy to see so many competent people buzzing around you. I get angry when they move you too quickly. I like it when they tend to you tenderly, your head kind of tacked on by a brace. I hate this thing, you say, but I'm so terrified to have it come off, because you know you can't hold your own head up. It's like being an infant again, but you have all this rich language. And when they take it off to stretch your head, your neck finally appears, beautiful and clammy and bluish, a little like the plucked skin of a bird. You ask me to lift your shoulders off the pillow and then set them back down. 
I try to get the rolled towel behind your head with one hand while I redistribute the gelatin of the pillow with the other. Just be a little bolder, you say. What feels right to you keeps changing. Thousands of times I moisten your mouth with balm and water. At lights out, I drive back to your house, where I sleep on the floor of your office amidst the hundreds of projects you left in progress. Piles of books and papers, tracks about global feminism, calls for social justice. And I do cry a little then, in mourning for your graceful and butch handwriting. But I know now where you are, and where you will be for some time. Gold leaves swirling outside, gold leaves making a halo, a halo over the hospital. I wanted Allie to do this night with me because Allie has this book called The Summer of Dead Birds that I thought was going to be out, but it's coming out very soon. But I asked Allie in the invitation if you wanted to do two, our two bummer books together. Because these are they're bummer books. They're both, I think, they're both. This one also has dead birds in it. I'm going to try and get to a dead, a dead bird poem quickly because it actually ends with dead birds that she may or may not know. Okay, and then, um, and then Allie and I will talk. But, um, but yes, yeah, so that's my... Um, that's my apology to her for the Debbie Downer nature of some of these poems. Okay, but now we'll go back to the affair, which is going so well and so poorly. Okay, so I'll give you just like four or five very short poems from this um, part of the book, and then we will be done. Okay, so um, let's see. Okay, this is another very Brooklyn poem. On the day of your leave-taking, on the day of your leave-taking, I wouldn't want to see you anyway. I want to be alone with my vagrant ugliness. I want the bridge suddenly to double its span, so the only parameter becomes the vanishing of my already thin-soled shoes. On a Friday night, one girl hangs from a trapeze by her shins. You think it looks scary, but having lived among them, I know there's always a safety. In this case, the toes. Another girl enjoys bars with themes. Another is painting bunnies in Kentucky. I am taking my welts to the tub hoping the porcelain is free of blood and hair, the blood and hair I left there, streaking the pale pink soap melting into the brick wall, which is growing black and green with companions. People continue to grind the veiny fat into the asphalt with their feet. It's only nine degrees. My river rocks are now bearded with ice. So the fat freezes and the spoon wedged into the cement glistens. I keep wanting to pick up every hard and bright object I find, put it in the mason jar, add blue pigment, and shake. Gnarled hand of green glass, leftover confetti, petrified pieces, pieces of pizza that appear neither near the trio of homeless men who watch a shaky TV hooked into a generator in the parking lot. It's where I get my news these days, and why not? They always know the score, the five-day weather report. I can see you boarding your jet plane. I can see you with your hat on crooked, as if you recently tumbled onto the planet out of the carapace of a rumpled goddess. I hear the gulf as a little bellicose, but beyond that livable, despite the depressing stats from that part of the world, and you know I will be here, perched into blotchy corners, not knowing what life could possibly mean without its soundtrack, so I can hum along to its pain, as if its humdrum or shared nature could possibly dim its particular luster. But it's the cold that makes my mascara pool up around my eyes and gives a shock to my quads as they push forward, the only idiot crossing the bridge at sunset but you have to march across the span while you can, before winter's sweet cocoon gets punctured and happiness presents itself as an option, and I have to accept the possibility of another body in my bed. I keep dreaming it's somebody else that's paralyzed, a childhood friend I've fallen out of touch with. I keep dreaming we're fucking, but somehow never alone. Sometimes I think it would be so hot to fuck you with another, 
and other times I know I'm just making the best out of a bad situation. Have I mentioned I'm watching a man softly cry as he searches for a lost pill under the pillows of a sage-colored couch? He has a cough that comes from the underworld, one lens of his glasses dramatically cracked. I want to hold him, the way I want to hold anyone who seems contagious. Maybe we could keep each other warm. And you emptied yourself twice into my throat, and I remained starved for more, the smell of one sex intimating the smell of another. But who am I kidding, really, on this January day that has dwindled into the single digits, in which we have to pin the drapes shut with safety pins and stuff towels into the honeycombed walls, and I just want to be called out as the greedy whore that I am. I read that poem once, Ninety Miles, who's a dear friend of ours, yelled, Greedy Horror! Greedy Horror! <laughs> Every time I read that poem, I hear her screaming right after that. It was really a great moment, and I thank her for it forever. Okay, I'll read two. I'll read the, okay, I'll read the, I'll read this for, uh, two more. Okay, this is for Allie. This is, because uh, she said she was going to ask me about triolet. So triolet, that's a poetic form. Okay, you'll get the idea. The cut on my mouth was shaped like a country. I showed it to you and you ran into the trees. Maybe the trees needed you, or maybe you needed the trees. The cut on my mouth was shaped like a country. It bled until the rain said, that's enough. It bled until the rain said, that is enough now. It bled, the cut on my mouth shaped like a country. I showed it to you and you ran into the trees. And then lastly, because these are the dead birds, um, this is a, a poem of very short parts. When I say it's in seven parts, don't freak. They're like five lines each. Okay, so this poem is called Morning Prayers. Um, all right, one. This morning I awoke with a fresh sense of total desperate hell, our failure to love each other well. Oh, let a Jesus come down and make it sweet. Let a Jesus take an ax to the wheel, part the fire with tongs. Two. You close your eyes and you say waves. Yes, everything is happening now in waves. I wanted to pull an okayness over me, so I lied about longing. I lied in the morning, I lied in the evening. Then I dropped the smallest granules into a glass capsule. I was just trying to stay close to the slope's soil. Three, auroras are not definite until they happen. In fact, the cards are always stacked against a good aurora. The sweet word has not worn off. It's just worn. Stop shaking the wound. If you want to see something glorious, look at the Pleiades. Four. This is called something bright. We share a brightness. It's called death in life. I toss and turn all night, hearing you say, I want to touch you without using my hands. Then I wake up with an offer. The hype of my clarity. My good clench and ache. Five, this is the then holes part. Every morning, the shadow of my hand haunts this table, asking, can I bleed here? Can I become free here? Don't want to be free, want to be with you, says the monster, but he is literally a monster. And I seek a different life, one of constant rapture, though I know the shadow will soon return with new questions, like, is this theater? Six. And I beat myself here. I hoisted myself onto this cliff. Blindfolded girl in a party dress, poised at the edge, ready to slake the village appetite for sacrifice. Oh, begin again, begin again. Seven, after reading about a girl who was killed by a knife wound straight through to a ventricle of her heart, 
I took a walk in the rural cemetery. There I saw two dead birds, one a scrawny baby, the other fat and gray feathered. Both were equally dead, though one was ringed with ants, the other fresher. At the end of the path lay a field, home to a regal light brown mare and her foal. It was there that I said a prayer to the brown and blue notebooks of your arms. these totes, Maggie. Oh, yeah, I know. What's um, the deal? What's the, what's the gimmick? Okay, well, before we look at the, this is embarrassing, okay, but the, the, I want to say this side, my dear friend Tara Jane O'Neill couldn't be here tonight, but she did the cover of the first Something Bright when it came out in 2007, and then um, she uh, gave a, a new drawing for the cover of this one, too, which was a, a sweet piece of continuity, and this is um, from that from her, too. But do people get one, or why, or they're selling them, or how can... You get one if you buy a book. You get one if you buy a book. And Soft School's been so sweet to reissue this, and so sweet to um, make these and stuff, so they, thank you. It's a miracle. You're, you're, you're incredible. Um, hi, everyone. Wow, what a crowd. Um, well, I just want to start with saying, how does it feel to read those poems after this book was for, first came out in 2007? So how does it feel to revisit all of that? I mean, it's interesting in part because uh, I feel kind of far away from the impulse to write poetry, and I think, as you can tell from reading the, from hearing some of those poems, that I, whatever I was doing with poetry, I mean, I lived in New York for you know most of my adult life, all of it till I was you know from 17 to 33, and then I moved to LA, and um, and as you can tell from those poems, I would just. You know, I just, it was like Frank O'Hara was my idol, and I just went around with my notebook, you know, and I wrote down everything I saw, so, and I don't, I don't do that here at all, and I've only written long nonfiction projects, because I feel like in L.A. I drive, and I think, and I drive, yeah. and I think, and I, and I, and, I, and it's beautiful, because I have space for, like, much bigger ideas and longer thoughts, but I guess what I was going to say is that, so on the one hand, I feel alienated from that process, um, and I think, wow, like, I really had the time to just go down to a canal and sit and like watch, you know, write down what pieces of trash I saw floating by, like amazing. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like I can see in those poems so many pieces of some of the projects I've done since. Um, uh, talking about color, say I want to write these things about the color blue, like, and um, uh, obviously a long poem about my friend and a kind of long-standing interest I've had in, um, in um, you know physical vulnerability and um, an injury, but like I say in that later poem, stop shaking the wound. Like um, that last poem I read, where I say after reading about a girl who was killed by a knife wound straight through to a ventricle of her heart. Like I was researching a book of mine called Jane, a murder um, about my aunt's murder, and I think that and that was what that was referencing. And like I can see all through everything. I read lots of pieces of, of other books, so it feels it feels native, you know, to me. Um, and uh, yeah, and, but it feels like a kind of act of attention to the material world that I think I've given more to um, the world of ideas in a way. Sense. I always think about well, I actually bought the first copy of this here, and because every time I come to Skylight, I try to buy it a book, but I almost always try to buy a book of poetry 
by women, <laughs> which is like, so there's at least one sale of poetry for a woman every year. But, um, that um, I had such a nice time. I went up to Griffith Park, the observatory, and just read this on a blanket, which felt so foreign in Los Angeles to do something like that. And poetry, I always think of poetry as like, especially in this day and age, is like a fuck you to time, you know, and that we, um, I just read that book, um, How to Break Up With Your Cell Phone or whatever, it's basically how we're stupid now from having a smartphone, you know, like we have the attention span of a gnat. Maggie just got her first smartphone, so this is probably the last time you'll ever hear her read or write, but, um, uh, but to think about, like, poetry as, um, you, you do write nonfiction too, and um, to think about, well, I always think about what poetry catches mm -hmm. that other work doesn't, you know, and like you referencing, because when I saw that about, if you haven't read Maggie's book, Bluettes, it's beautiful, as all, all her books are, but Bluettes is, I think, my favorite of oh, yours, and, um, and I met you as a poet, so I always think of you as a poet first, you know, but when I think about poetry and what it means in, in this day and age, and whether it's for us or for others, or just that part. Marie Howe always talks about poetry as a spiritual autobiography, you know, and um, I, I love that, that summing up, but I just wanted to ask you about um, sort of your relationship to why not poetry now, besides time, right. or is that the only thing you mean me personally? Yeah. Like, why not? Yeah. Like, why um, is is there like are there things that yeah. that I know? Love is a great time to write poetry, right. and the shatterings of love, as we all know. Yeah. But like, is there? You yeah, know, that happens. I look forward to the grand um, <laughs> yeah. poetic wave. Um, yeah. Well, it's funny. We did meet as poets, and I think for me, um, in addition to loving poetry, in addition to um, you know, poetry is a great laboratory because you can try and make something work in a very small, like an afternoon, and you like got your trio laid together, and you're like, yeah, that's tight, and like, you know, and that now obviously the time of like spending years to try and make something cohere with longer things is not like you can learn a lot, I guess. But I was also going to say that it's also and relating to my meeting you that way is that you know it was tremendously social for me in a way that my writing life is not now, and so. Um, I mean, I hosted countless open mics at the you know, St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York, and you know, everything I did was really based in and around the poetry world. And um, I mean, I think the more you're around poetry, the more you read it. I mean, I, I think the more you feel the urge to write it. And I know um, uh, my friend Wayne Kostenbaum, amazing writer, you know, he told me once that he always teaches poetry once a year when he teaches grad school like because if he doesn't read it regularly he just won't feel the urge to write it and i do feel like if i ever but i do think it's a big fuck you to time so like and i don't as often take down poetry books and read them but when i do i do feel like the urge to write a poem it's very instantaneous you know so i think that that is interesting and we're probably um but i don't know i mean i don't i don't i, I went through a phase where everyone was always asking me why i didn't write poems anymore and i felt like it was indicating there was a problem like that I had to feel ashamed and kind of self-flagellate about it, but I actually feel really happy with my writing life such as it is, and like, so I don't feel the same sense of like, what, wither poetry, you know what I mean? But I, but I do feel like it's, um, I mean, I think what's, what's 
what's cool too, in addition to the fuck you to time, is that there's a kind of um, there's a kind of belief in that both your experience and that language really matters, like in, in this way that like it's enough to be like like even often I, especially not this book as much, but like earlier books of poetry, my I just think, wow, like I had a lot of hutzpah to think that like at 22 this book really mattered, you know, like because now I know so much more literature and so much more, and I see the writing is more derivative and kind of, but you know, I think that that's also very beautiful. It's like it's not just it's not just uh, it's not just a laboratory or social. It's also like a place where I learned how to speak, you know. I always think of them as like it's like a weird journal, like you like the things that you list in the river. Yeah. Like you never would have remembered those things had you not. Like there's something about cementing them in a poem that is this kind of like just random memory that is there. Maybe the maxi pad floats like floats by. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah. You know. And yeah, yeah. I love that about poetry. Let's all write poems. Yeah. Fuck you, time yeah. and smoke. Right, yeah. yeah. And um. <laughs> Maggie, um... <laughs> but I have to kind of say one weird thing, and I don't usually do this, but in the back of this book, I was just noticing, because I was looking at it, it says, um... It's from Publishers Weekly. It says, um... Each section has, although each section has lines, stanzas, and lyric musicality, it's poetry only in a, a very loose sense. Yeah. <laughs> you can still buy it. <laughs> It's a stunning collection of real-world stories shadowed by the netherworld of poetry. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, why isn't it poetry? Like, I was, I yeah. was looking at it again, being like, they look in the I was like, there's a triolet, there's a sonnet. Like, I was really confused by that. But I thought it was interesting actually thinking about your books because I also feel like it is true because I was rereading some of Dead Birds and obviously Beautifully Worthless and stuff that, like, and then this came obviously out when I wrote this book, Jane, which I mentioned before, which is actually a, it is a long narrative told in 20 pages of poems. But that, you know, I think, I mean, it is true, like Michael and Dodge's early books, Coming Through Slaughter, and the collected works of Billy the Kid, and, and Murray Rukaj's Book of the Dead. I mean, I always have loved book-length poet, you know, poems. I love, you know, I worship Alice Notley, um, and The Descent of Alette, and all those epic poems. So I think in some ways, like, you know, if, if what they're trying to say is, <laughs> They're trying to say that like there's an interest in other currents, like about plot or recurring themes or whatever, you know, characters, you know, me and the man in black, whatever. That, that, that is all true, but I don't think that means it's out of the province of poetry. Poetry's done that kind of work for a very long time. Like, hello, Homer. Did you, um, did you see what mine said? It's like, it's like it's not depressing poems at all. It acts as an air freshener in the car. It will clean a bathtub. I mean, they don't ever know how to sell a poetry book. It's some poor person who has to write that and is like freaking out. Like, how are we going to sell this book where there's such sadness and realness and I don't know. I, I don't know. My book is so sad. I just buy it anyway and just like give it away so they don't, you know, like. It's really sad. It's sad. It's very. It's, it's no, it's so sad. It shouldn't be published probably. I mean, I kind of wondered if it should. But, um. Why would I yeah. just reading to you guys the poem about the halo over the hospital? I mean, just because I mean, Allie's book has a, a lot of attentiveness to, you know, to death, to, to death. Yes. And, and I think that, um, but you know, I think. Well, I'll just say this. I mean, you said you were going to ask me something about that poem, so maybe I'll wait and see you ask me. You want me to ask you? Okay. Because I feel like you're accidentally answering okay, all the yeah. questions okay. before I got to them, and now I just seem dumb. <laughs> okay. Um, um, 
Well, I was going to actually, that long poem about your friend, I always, I also have written about people who've been ill and people who have died and the point of view of watching that and have wondered, even though I've participated in that, my right to that in some ways, the ethics of, of sharing that kind of story and yet I've never felt judgmental when reading another person's. In fact, I've been very grateful for the experience of, of reading that, that kind of documentation. I don't know if that's because it's about, it's very hard for us as humans to, to be in, you know, that space with someone who's sick or dying or suddenly paralyzed or whatever. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your process with that, yeah. since that was a mentor and a friend and someone who's now written their own book about yeah. that experience. And, and for Christina, she's one of the few people in my life who's like recurred in nearly every book I've written. Like I just and I just feel like you know my mother, Christina. There's like a few of them where I'm just like I'm so sorry, but um, I mean it means that it means how important they are to me, and it means also that they're that they're. I mean, Louette, she's the person I call you know my injured friend. And I and at, at that point in that book, I'm taking care of her for the course of a couple of years. Um, not not in the sense that her nurses are, but like, you know, a day or two a week. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, uh, more in addition to the brazenness of youth when you think all of your, you know, poetic uh, scrawls on napkins are worth being in a book, I, I was also more, I, I didn't ask as many ethical questions as I probably ask now about my writing, and um, I think that, uh, um, so, so I am sometimes a little amazed at some of the things I've done, <laughs> and um, I don't have cause, thankfully, to have any strong regrets. Um, I will say that with Christina and with this particular poem, um, of all the people I've written about, uh, she's the only person who's been actively grateful for my writing about her, and that is really surprising, I think, especially um, given the kinds of intimacies I'm describing, I think that um, she actually writes about it in a body undone that she doesn't remember, um, you know, this whole time that I'm writing about, obviously because of the nature of the intensity of her accident, is um, she, she doesn't have any memory. I mean, she does not remember asking me to, you know, I told her I should read provincial lines in Europe, right? None of it. I mean, she doesn't remember, and, you know, she kind of remembers like maybe midway through being at the hospital for special care, kind of like coming to. But there was so much before that, and then to her, you know, it was a record of her, of her, of time that she lived that she doesn't have, you know. And I think she felt attended to, and I think that she felt, um, after having a more private life as an academic, I think she felt like, I mean, I, she wouldn't say it in this word, and I don't want, I don't want to put words in her mouth, and thankfully this is not live stream, so she'll never, hope, I mean, live stream maybe, but not recorded, maybe she'll never hear it, but like, I, my, my, I suspect that, um, I suspect that having kind of been outed in such a vulnerable fashion made her feel more like, well, I might as well. I mean, she has a whole chapter in A Body Undone about her bowel program because, you know, if you're paralyzed, you can't, above a certain point, you can't move your bowels by yourself. And I mean, these different things that, you know, are really like, you know, ra ra radically, I mean, to me, they're not radically, like, I'm into shit, so I don't think that's particularly, uh, you know, fundamentally, you know, shaming or something, but like culturally speaking, like I think, you know, people, people might, like, 
people are always saying, like, I don't want to live long enough not to be in diapers. And I'm like, diapers are the least of the problem. So, like, <laughs> but I kind of feel like, you know, but I feel like that, but she's, you know, she's actively expressed gratitude for me for those poems, and, um, and that's meaningful. And obviously, both this book and then Bluettes, I would never have published without her having read them. You know, I mean, it wasn't like I was, I mean, I, I, when I say I was brazen ethically, it was more like that I would write them down and ask people to read it and see if they were okay with it. Um, but I would not have, I was never so brazen as to like, I would never publish anything she didn't want me to say, you know. Um, I, I know, I feel like I have such a bad memory that my own poems are like a kind of weird memory for me too, yeah. in a way, that I'm so grateful for, yeah. since I remember nothing, you know? Okay. Um, let's see, see if I have anything smart, I doubt it. Um, well, I think you already answered this one, which was um, the canal um, poems. I guess my main question is like when you're like in the middle of a love affair or something new or something tumultuous, I always feel like this strong drive to have a backdrop mm -hmm. for that, you know, and like the canal and the, and the ritual of that, and you know, I just felt it was so powerful to have that as a setting yeah. um, as you're following kind of that love affair, and I guess I just wanted you to to talk a little, you just said you were, like, did you get to the canal before you were in love? Or, like, did, was that, you know, the, the kind of holder for all of that stuff? Or can you talk a little yeah, bit yeah. about the relationship? Ali warned me to ask me. I'm sorry. Oh, you can, yeah, no, no, it's all good. It's so long ago. That's a million part of this book. It's like, who cares about I know, and it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who cares about the people, right? Yeah, like, yeah, no one, it doesn't, they're like, that's amazing. Oh my God, how painful. You're like, I don't even remember the person's name. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Time ago. So, so, so because it was so long ago, I can just tell you flat out that it was so weird because I, I was with somebody, we moved to the canal, to an apartment, but I started an affair right after we moved there because I wasn't really, it was like a acting out, like it was the wrong move to move in, right? So I was just there for 40 days, which is as long as I could uh, not burst out the information of this type. So there's like two U's in that whole long series. And then um, eventually I, you know, complain about everything and leave. But I was not planning, that was not the plan. My plan was just to move there and live a new life and whatever, but it just all totally unraveled. But I do think that you're um, right about, there's a poet named Frances Richard, I don't know if any of you know Frances, but she's a really great art writer and poet who I love very much. And but she has um, a book of poems called See Through, but she uses as its epigraph, I think, a, a Frank O'Hara comment where he says, um, um, I'm not going to get it right, but it's something to the effect of, you know, um, then a person walked in and made the landscape narrative. And I've always loved it so much because it's like, you know, there's the landscape, right? And then a person walks through and suddenly there's a narrative. And I think that I was definitely playing with that feeling. I think that that's the feeling that you have. And I think, um, but I also think that both this book and Blue Eyes, which I wrote right, right afterwards, um, I'm not in this place at all right now. I don't know if I want to be in it or not, but I think I was very fascinated by it. And that's the reason why it's called something Brightman Holes is because um, it's a description from an essay about a girl who's been blind her whole life, and then when she suddenly can see, she describes her hand as something bright than holes, right? It's like there's the holes and there's the bright parts. And um, I was very interested in like this idea that when in kind of times of um, great disruption or great pain or great or great you know lust or whatever that that, that the physical world can appear um, 
differently. And in Lewis, I wrote about this. It's actually kind of like a neurological phenomenon where like colors can seem brighter. I mean, I mean, it seems like duh. You know, like it sounds like a commercial for like you know, suddenly like we're in you know the land of Oz or whatever. But I think that it's very fascinating to me. Like at what points life feels dull, and at what points you know actively do things seem to have almost a um, you know take on an almost talismanic proportions of a life. And like poetry as a practice can be a way of injecting life with that talismanic feeling, you know, because like you go out hunting and you don't even know what you're hunting for. You're like, you're hunting for a poem, you know? And so therefore the whole world is kind of becomes that. But I think in both of these books, um, yeah, there's like, the landscape is interesting, but it's the people wandering through it and the kind of like emotional um, upheaval that makes it both narrative and also more um, strobing, I guess. I love your poetry, Matt. Thank you, Allie. And I love you. I love you, too. Um, should we open sure, it up why to not? Okay. <laughs> any other dead bird fans in the crowd tonight? Any questions for poets? Yeah. Our poet. Do you have a question okay. back there? No, I'm just stretching. Look at this crowd. Look at all of these people saying, fuck you, the time. Anything. Yeah, so Amy Dillard was my teacher when I was in college, so I was very young. Um, but, you know, but, um, I mean, Annie Dillard, for those of you who read her and stuff, you know, she's a really, I mean, she's a big, obviously, fan of Thoreau and Emerson and everything, but especially Thoreau and this idea of kind of like, Thoreau has this quote that says, I'm going to butcher it the way I'm butchering all the quotes, but it's something like, it's not what you're looking at, it's whether you see, you know? And I think that all of her assignments were um, a form of, non-journalism, journalism, just about going out into the world and, you know, doing journalistic exercises of kind of, you know, what journalists do, which is like, do the five senses, what do I see, feel, you know, whatever. And then also talking to people. Um, I mean, I, I remember she would just, I went to college in a little town and she would just be like, you know, you go spend the afternoon somewhere and just, you know, write up a profile of someone that you meet. And I'd be like, I don't want to go do that. But I, yeah, but I did. And I think that that kind of, um, uh, you know, even when I wrote, like I wrote a book, The Red Partisan, which was about a murder trial, but I thought about her a lot then too, just because I didn't know what was going to happen at the trial, but I just took my notebook like a, you know, like a good fake journalist and was like, wrote down every day everything that I saw, and I think it's a kind of, I mean, and then Annie Dillard is also somebody who, you know, she could write about going to see like a total eclipse, and it sounds like she just is telling you about the eclipse that she saw, but of course she's researched like, you know, how fast the shadow moves across the mountain, and how many eclipses there have been, and, you know, and then that, that that's brought very seamlessly into the writing, so I think that that sense of doing heavy research and also heavy um, just exposure and immersion was was all really important to me, and, and I really took to it, and, you know, and when I was her student, you know, we were... I was really into like the East Village punk scene and stuff, and like, you know, and the you know she did not want to hear about like Big Bonarovich or you know Richard Kern or Patti Smith or anything. It was like so we were like so it was so ridiculous, but I but it didn't matter because the methodologies of the thing were like the same, you know. about the structure of your books. So in Bluettes and the Argonauts, for example, it seems very structured and um, you'll be writing in prose almost in Argonauts and then 
it'll break and it'll talk about something completely different, sort of related. I wonder if you have that in your mind when you write, or if you write more in like a freestyle prose and then go back in and make those shifts, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, all of my books are constructively differently in terms of how they were written, you know, like I wrote that blue book in a very programmatic way where I had a list of blue objects or stories or things and then uh, like factoids I called them my blue factoids and like I would I would that's why um, so going to work on that book was kind of easy because I'd be like well which factoid do I want to write out the story of today you know and then but then you know you have to write for a long time until you realize like the book like a book about the color blue is a boring, like who cares about the color blue? I mean, there's already a lot of books about the color blue. So like you have to write long <laughs> enough to realize like the blue is like your purported subject, but then you have your shadow subjects or like your your under subjects that like end up being the structuring principles, you know? And in that case, I was also very programmatic because once I found out what those were, I was like, I like listed them out. I was like divinity, alcoholism, you know, whatever. And like, and then I kind of had a, then the, then the kind of game of the construction would be like, um, you know, how can I weave these different subjects together so like, A, you never think, wasn't this book about the color blue? Like, where are we? And then, but then, but you, but you kind of like, you know, go far away and come back and go far and come back and um, with a certain rhythm. Um, but then, you know, like a book like The Argonauts was written really differently and that, that book has a lot of, um, uh, that, that book had a lot of, big pieces, like a long um, talk I gave about Eve Sedgwick was one big piece, uh, essay I wrote for my friend A.L. Steiner was a big piece, like they were kind of big pieces um, and uh, some were about maternity, whatever that means, and then some were a lot were about queer stuff and once that book became, that, that was like the kind of uh, impossible or exciting nexus of those two things became its subject then it kind of became like how to again like how to make a like leaven it such that um, but you know I don't like I don't care like you all can do this and that's fine and I'm not and we may never talk about my work again but like I, but it, but I don't I don't love when people say like that the works are like collages or something just because I I don't um, usually I, I, I kind of like to move from point A to point B in a longer project with a, a kind of um, uh, some kind of narrative movement, even if it's a narrative of ideas, um, instead of kind of being interested in immediate juxtaposition. But I do think that like the art of poetry is the art of juxtaposition often. So if, you, if that's what you learn and know, then that's going to be like one of your big tools in your toolbox for constructing longer pieces. You know. It reads very seamlessly, but I, when I thought about the construction, I was like, that seems very challenging. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's all different. Like, if it's a short enough book, I can like, lay it out on the floor, right. which I did with Jane and Bluets. Like, I worked a lot on the floor, but, like, the Argonauts was too long for that, and it wasn't crazy, because you have to keep it on your head. I mean, God bless everybody in this room and friends of mine who write, like, 500-page novels. I do not understand that anyone keeps things in their head, because it's made so material, like, with Paul. I mean, George Oppen, who I adore as a poet, you know, he would, I mean, one of the things I loved learning about him was that he would actually, like, write things and, like, nail them with a hammer, like, onto the poem, like, scraps of paper and stuff. Like, his, his shit was, like, literally material, like, constructions, you know what I mean? Like, that's kind of like, you know, um, before Flarf and these other, like, you know, 
the things all made us dumb with. I don't know what a flart is. Any flart? Do people know what flart is? What is it? talking to people like in a room but like I don't um, uh, like the, the idea of putting imagining other people's eyes on my work who might be hostile to me or my subcultures or whatever was just so preposterous like I mean who who would care and I still don't care at all um, but I think that like say with a book like The Argonauts, which also I didn't really think would have, certainly not the readers that it found, but I think that, um, oh I don't know, like writing something that is very like say like uh, like intra-queer community like discussion or something and then like but imagining like, uh, I mean like my partner who read that book was just kind of like, you know in the first iterations was kind of like there were certain things that he was just like, you know, this is just like uh, outside the family is not going to be understood, you know. And I, and, I, and I wouldn't like, I wouldn't censor that myself like in a big way, but I think I would just think about maybe more things like that sometimes, you know. What are you working on now, Maggie? Well, Allie. Am I a collage? <laughs> It's a collage poem, which is, uh, what does it say? On Google? It's, it's a shadow by the netherworld of poetry. Right. It's, it's, it's poetry, phone. but it's yeah. not, right, oh, yeah. Phone. A bit moji. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. That's why, why I got my phone to do a bit moji. Um, I, I'm writing a book about freedom, and it is a criticism book. It's not autobiographical, and it's uh, it has... Uh, uh, a chapter on uh, freedom in drugs, freedom in art, freedom in climate, um, freedom and sexual sexual freedom now, and it's, so it's a big project, and it's been with me since before I started writing the Argonauts, so it's been um, kind of a beast to me. I think that I've always been like a liberation-minded person finding herself living in what people often call like post-liberatory times, and that bothers me. And so I'm interested in what, um, so each chapter kind of takes up that problem. It's not like how to survive, you know, not going to autocracy in the time of Trump or something. Yeah. Although, although I will say that it's not political, I mean it's political, but it's not political theory. But I will say that, um, you know, it's been a weird book to work on hmm. over the past five years because things have um, 
uh, things that seemed like they were undercurrents, you know, that I was tapping into or the other thinkers are tapping into now seem obviously like overcurrents all the time and then that makes things you know need to change because you're not really diagnosing something that now is all very obvious you know? um, but I think that it's still um, I, I, how do I say it I think it's like um, like in the chapter I just finished about the climate I'm very interested in this idea of kind of, um, you know, for so long people have thought like whatever we're doing, even if it's social justice, it has to be sold in the language of freedom, you know, it has to be sold in the language of liberation, decolonization, you know, all these kind of different tropes. And I think it's really difficult when there are things like the climate um, crisis that are really about uh, grappling with limitations and with the fact that um, the entire kind of ideology of freedoms that we have had have been historically commensurate with with carbon, basically, you know, and like in some sense they're not uh, they're not um, the idea. A lot of modern ideas of freedom about being even things like we all love, like you all, you know, like like just being delinked from your toxic family because you can live two thousand miles away, or like all these things that are very like that really mean to us. Oftentimes, freedom are often made possible by something that may be destroying the conditions for, for human activity. And, and so those kinds of knots are very thorny and troubling to me. I'm not going home, Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. until the last yeah. polar bear is yeah. gone. <laughs> That's when I'm going home. I'll float on my ice thing back to Las Vegas. No, in Vegas, I was going to say. Yeah. So no, they're doing the right thing over there. there. Yeah. yeah. No one has AC on, no, or pools. They're doing great. Yeah, should we do one more, and then you one want to sign yes, some books? Okay. Okay. Um, I know you said when you are reading poetry, it kind of makes you instantly want to write poetry. When you're working on a book of criticism like you are now, does that change your reading habits? Are you always researching, or are there other books that you find time for? Yeah, no, I think it really changes my reading habits. And uh, I mean, I don't read... Um, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I read, I read different things, but I, but I, um, I mean, I, but I tend to read in the genre that I'm writing in. You know, I think sometimes, um, and I don't mean this in a bad way. And if any of you come tell me later, like criticism you're reading that you like, I'm really happy to hear it. But you know, I feel like when when I, when I reach kind of a wall where I can't find. Um, like I'll read a lot of criticism for ideas, you know, but when I can't find, but there's not a lot of, um, there's some, but there's not tons of cultural or art criticism that like has form or style that I think is super rad. <laughs> and so um, oftentimes when I'm trying to solve those problems, that's when I'll go back to more, you know, different, different genres or things like that. You guys, Maggie Nelson, I'm so lucky to have You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.